Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. It is really great to actually have people in the room here today. Um, There's just something about hearing the fullness of the sound of the worship. Um, one quick announcement before we get into things here uh, is, as we've said, we're going to be beginning uh, opening up the church for uh, convening on location next week. I just need to let you know that there is a cutoff to how many people will be in those gatherings, and we're going to try and stagger that so if you don't get in this next week that you can come in the following week if you want to. Also, again, the masks are required. I'm uh, going to ask you two things on the mask. One, don't bring a mask that has a vent on the side of it. That protects you, but it doesn't protect the people around you. And then the other thing is when you're wearing your mask, don't cheat like that or like that. It should cover your nose and the whole thing just so you can be responsible what we're doing. If we can carry this forward, then we can continue to gather is what our hope is. Um, I'm going to ask also for those who are present here right now in the room, if you'd stick around for just a minute or two after our gathering here, uh, I'd appreciate that. I want to continue on in our study in Psalms, and to do that, I want to play for you um, a brief clip. Uh, I'll ask in the room how many of you are Monty Python fans. Okay, there's a few of my people present. Uh, um, This is a clip from a guy named John Cleese, uh, who came to fame through that, and uh, there's a word he puts in twice of describing people at the back end of each of his things he's saying, the word is moderates, if you cannot hear that, the word moderates. And so here is John Cleese with a picture and an audio. A harsher atmosphere everywhere, more abuse and bother boy behavior, less friendliness and tolerance and respect for opponents. All right, but what we never hear about extremism is its advantages. Well, the biggest advantage of extremism is that it makes you feel good because it provides you with enemies. Let me explain. The great thing about having enemies is that you can pretend that all the badness in the whole world is in your enemies and all the goodness in the whole world is in you. Attractive, isn't it? So, if you have a lot of anger and resentment in you anyway, and you therefore enjoy abusing people, then you can pretend that you're only doing it because these enemies of yours are such very bad persons. And that if it wasn't for them, you'd actually be good-natured and courteous and rational all the time. So, if you want to feel good, become an extremist. Okay, now you have a choice. If you join the hard left, they'll give you their list of authorized enemies. Almost all kinds of authority, especially the police, the city, Americans, judges, multinational corporations, public schools, furriers, newspaper owners, fox hunters, generals, class traitors, and, of course, moderates. 
Oh, if you'd rather be an extremist on the hard right, no problem, fine, you still get a lovely list of enemies, only they're different ones. Noisy minority groups, unions, Russia, weirdos, demonstrators, welfare sponges, meddlesome clergy, peaceniks, the BBC, strikers, social workers, communists, and of course, moderates. And upstart actors. Now, once you're armed with one of these super lists of enemies, you can be as nasty as you like and yet feel your behaviors morally justified. So you can strut around uh, abusing people and telling them you could eat them for breakfast and still think of yourself as a champion of the truth, a, a fighter for the greater good, and not the rather sad paranoid schizoid that you really are. Okay, I don't know if you're able to hear all of that clearly enough, especially with the English accent. Obviously, it's coming from an English perspective as well, too, uh, when it listed Americans as someone to hate. Um, how good to have that on Fourth of July uh, weekend. <clears throat> but if you're listening, he's got the listings of these things, and the whole idea behind it is that you can feel justified um, once you have determined who is uh, not in the right, and, and you have this sense of righteousness. And both groups attack moderates, those that are in the middle. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a guy who suffered, he was a Christian, who suffered through the uh, communism, uh, the gulag, the, the prison camps and labor camps, wrote a number of books coming out. And in one of those books, he referenced something I've referenced here before. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. And that's kind of what Cleese is offering up here. Now, one interesting thing about John Cleese's thing, incidentally, is this. He wrote that and performed that 30 years ago. That's why I had the pictures differing up there from when he was 30 years ago. So that was, exa- that was offered 30 years ago. Nothing changes, folks. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, whether you're left or you're right. But the line dividing good and evil, he wrote, cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Fritz Haber is probably the most important person in your life that you never heard of. He was a secularized Jew, remember that, in Germany. He started to make his mark just prior to World War I. He's married to a brilliant woman named Clara, who was a scientist in her own right. Haber discovered a way to separate the nitrogen out of the air to produce an ammonia drip, which sounds really not sexy at all, but it does this. This ammonia could be put into fertilizer. Fritz Haber is the, one of the main reasons why, according to the studies, that the world today can support almost 7 billion people. He literally, at one point, was said could pull bread out of the air. Because of this process he developed, fertilizer was able to be manufactured and distributed around the world. Prior to that, it was, it was dependent upon um, bat guano and other things that, that were from, imported and brought in. But he was able to do this literally out of the air. And so there are literally billions of people alive today because of this guy and his work back in the early 1900s. In fact, he was awarded a Nobel Prize for chemistry. And so we'd sit here and say that Fritz Haber was a really good guy. Many of us are here today or family members because of his work, and the world is being fed because of his work. It's amazing what he was able to achieve. 
When the war started, he was a very patriotic German, wanted to show his patriotism, and so he began to work for the military. And some of the same methods that he had could have military applications. And so at one point in time in World War I, he comes to the front lines with a machine that produces a cloud, a whale-sized cloud, that drifts across the front lines of the Allies and kills thousands. It was a, a type of poison gas that had come out of his research. He continued to work um, in Germany for a while, but at one point in time, as Germany becomes far uh, increasingly against Jews, at one point in time he shows up the ministry and he is told by just a guard at the door that the Jew Haber is no longer permitted in the building. Crushed by that, he uh, emigrates and eventually dies. Now here's the real kicker on the whole deal. This brilliant scientist who in his brilliance and God-given abilities fed literally billions of people and, and allows for the existence that we have today, not only developed poison gas, but at one point in time, the Nazis used his technology to develop something called Cyclone B. It was this um, chemical that was used to gas the Jews, his own people, and kill up to one million people at least in the uh, concentration camps. So I'd offer to you a question here today. Is, was, was Fritz a really good guy, or was he really evil? Or is the question maybe a complication of both, that, that there's something that's within man, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that is so much marked with the image of God that we are little, just a little bit lower than the angels. And if that's truly our condition, then why do some of these situations that we just heard about, why is it that that a group of people can occupy a section, and I'm not judging right or wrong on it, but they occupy a section of Seattle, named it Chaz originally, later named it Chop. Interesting side note, used some of the same language at one point, literally invoked the French Revolution, which can have some meaning for some of us who have been tracking things recently. And so they forbade any of the authorities to come in. And in this beautiful place that was likened to a summer of love, and everyone's supposedly on the same page, and everyone's there for, for good feelings, good, good times, and nonviolence, that two young men end up being shot, a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old, and killed. And two or three others were also wounded in the process. When we throw off restraints, when we allow our true nature to engage, things don't always work well. The reason for this, in part, is our understanding of our own nature. If we go to the idea that all the evil people are just on the opposite side of us and we're good, then we are deceiving ourselves. If we imagine that if, if just everyone can get together and that we'd all create this beautiful world, they thought that would happen in Europe and then World War I hit and it disillusioned an entire generation. There is something about the nature of mankind that is, is not, the story is not complete if we just talk about the Imago Dei, if we just talk about um, the image of God within us that, and the fact that he declared us good when he made us. That there is something within us that is drawn towards the good, but there's something else as well. And one author describes it as a mirror that is cracked in the sense that we reflect the image of God, but because of sin that, that came into the garden with our original ancestors, that it has marked us and put a crack in our mirror so the reflection is distorted. 
and that this distortion, or theologians will refer to this as the depravity of man, that this distortion affects all aspects of mankind. Mind, body, soul, reason, our affections, our emotions, all of these things have become somehow infected with sin. Now there's somewhat of a, a, a note that we should look into here is, is how does this relate then to our examination of Psalms? Let's take a look at, at Psalm 53. Only fools say in their hearts there is no God. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. So there's these individuals who say there is no God for them. And there's a corruption and there's an evil to the actions and not one of them is good. He goes on in the second verse. God looks down from heaven on the entire human race. And he looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good. Not a single one. Aren't those of you who are in the room really glad that you really made the effort to come out today? You know, so far? This is great, isn't it? Just rich stuff. Will those who do evil never learn? Goes on in verse 4. They eat up my people like bread. One translation says it's like a fast food meal. You just devour people without even a thought. You're so ravenous and so uncaring. And wouldn't think of praying to God. But then it says terror will grip them. Terror like they've never known before. God's going to scatter the bones of your enemies. You'll be, will be put them to shame for God has rejected them. And then the last verse of this psalm says, who will come from Mount Zion to rescue Israel? When God restores his people, Jacob will shout with joy, Israel will rejoice. There's a statement in this, in this psalm, and instantly it's reflected in the 14th psalm. It's almost word for word the same psalm, with a little bit more hope in this one, which is why I chose it today, rather than the 14th, because it ends on a little more positive note. But they're both almost word for word the same scripture. It's repeated and invoked in Romans chapter 3 when Paul's writing, And he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And he's referring to the 14th and the 53rd Psalm when he says, as it is written. The prophet Jeremiah, just one of multiple passages in the 17th chapter, says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And then the 51st Psalm says, surely I was sinful at birth. It's not something that happens to us later. We're sinful at birth. And from the time that my mother conceived me. When we put this in the context of some of the struggles that are going on in our country today, the extremism that, that, that shouts down the other and says they alone are righteous that somehow if we can eliminate all authority and all conflict and all issues, that somehow we'd have this utopia on earth. That's been the dream of Marxism and communism forever. And it cost 150 million deaths in the 20th century alone in Russia and China and other countries that tried to employ that. And I'm not making an argument for capitalism. I think capitalism actually has some really raw aspects to it. It only works because it has an actual understanding of the heart of man. And that's not necessarily a a great thing. If we don't get a grasp of not just the fact that we were made in the image of God and there's something of greatness in us that we can achieve things like a Fritz Haber that could save billions of lives or transform the world. If, if If we limit ourselves to just that alone, then we have a misunderstanding of mankind. 
We need to understand that there's this other nature that lurks inside us that would poison other people with our rhetoric or our, our statements or with our actions. We need to recognize that there's something poison within us, ourselves, that causes those things. There's a common misconception regarding a total depravity. And one author put it this way, that total depravity does not mean that man is as wicked or as sinful as he could be, nor does it mean that man is without a conscience or any sense of right or wrong. Neither does it mean that man does not or cannot do things that seem to be good when viewed from a human perspective or measured against a human standard. It does not even mean that man cannot do things which seem to conform outwardly even to the law of God. What the scripture does teach, though, And what total depravity does recognize, that even the good things that we do are tainted by sin because, generally speaking, they're not done for the glory of God or based on faith in Him. It's something that that we choose for ourselves. Even the the good things that we seem to do are more out of a sense of self-justification and a sense of self-righteousness. Not to pound the point down too far, but, but to press one more point in time. In 2009, there was a German scientist named John Suman. He took a group of subjects out to empty parking lots and open fields, and he blindfolded them and instructed them to walk in a straight line. Some of them managed, he said, to keep a straight course for 10 or 20 paces. A few lasted for 50 or 100. But in the end, he said, all of them wound up circling back towards their points of origin. Not many of them, he said, Not most of them, he said, but every last one. Every last one. He said, quote, they have no idea. They had no idea. They were thinking that they were walking in a straight line all the time, unquote. They examined every possible explanation for it. Some people turned right. Some people turned left. They tried to put lifts in the feet so they would steer it one way or the other to try to counter it or balance it no matter what they do, gluing a rubber sole to the bottom. He said, quote, it didn't make any difference at all. So again, that is pretty random what people do. Um, And it wasn't even limited incidentally to walking. They explored this in swimming blindfold or I'm not sure who would want to do this, driving a car blindfold. And they found that no matter how they thought they were going straight, in every single occasion, they swirled and went around. We cannot, as human beings, on our own, without another point of reference, we are incapable of walking in a straight line. We can't keep our lives straight in and of ourselves. And so we get all caught up with these extreme positions or we do uh, incredible things like a Fritz Haber and some horrible things like a Fritz Haber. We do stupid things like the college students that I just read about this past week in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who've been throwing parties where they invite infected people with coronavirus and then they gamble on who comes down with it. So they're having a party, they invite someone to come, and they actually engage the person by touch, kiss, or whatever else, and then they take a bet on which one of us is going to come down with the virus first. What are people thinking? Well, obviously, they're complete fools and idiots, and we are the ones that are truly wise and, and, and accurate and thoughtful. If only there were evil people, some were insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. 
all those radicals, all those deep conservatives, all those of one race or another race, all those of one political persuasion or another, all those that are partying in Alabama, and all those who are wisely, because we're wise, we're using mass, we're being careful, so we're much more righteous and much more thoughtful. But the line dividing good and evil cuts to the heart of every human being, and who's willing to destroy a part of their own heart? And if we were just to end the message here on a Lord of the Flies note, and if you haven't read that book, that's a worthwhile one to examine as well too. A bunch of young people end up being cast away on an island and at first they're civilized, but it quickly it breaks down to a weird sort of, of, of idol worship and, and mayhem and murder of everyone. And it's an examination that the writer did of the roots and core of what mankind is. And so if we were to just finish our time here and walk away, this would be indeed one of your more joyous holidays, would it not? But those of you who are part of this congregation, whether you're present here or not, hopefully know better than that. Those of you who are in the audience, let me explain to you. And again, let me make it clear. A congregation is a church that gathers, that knows one another, is in fellowship with one another. And there are those of you that are an audience that are viewing us for whatever purpose through the stream, and that's fine. And we welcome you to join and become part of that. But there's a difference between the two. Ephesians chapter 2 starts off by a, a really depressing note that carries through the depression of our argument and conversation so far. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You couldn't walk a straight line. You're doing stupid things. You're, you're capable of greatness and of horror. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But it goes on and says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you and I have been saved. It's nothing we've done. It's not our works. It's not our political position. It's not our race. It's not our our intellect. It's none of those things. It's strictly the issue of God's grace and his love for us that we have become not just observers and an audience, but that we become a congregation that we become part of, of a history that goes back for the beginning of time that connects us together, even if we're not present in this gathering here. And for those of you that can't join us over the next couple of weeks or months, that's understood. Don't feel a shame or a guilt in that. For your health reasons or for your children's or whatever you've got going on, we understand that. But you're still part of us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. Any interaction I have with another human being, I need to respect the image of God in them, cracked as it is. But I also have to recognize that there's a a, a fallacy within my own spirit and my own heart. It doesn't mean I can't offer an opinion or offer a view, but I do that in a way that recognizes my own lack of righteousness at the core. That the only reason I stand at all is because of the grace of God. 
And that changes the texture and the tone of any argument and any discussion. Because when I come from that position of brokenness and awareness of grace and how God has blessed and extended that to me despite my, my failings and despite my inabilities, then I walk a little more softly, a little more gently with my fellow man. Second Corinthians goes on and says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. And so again, the 53rd Psalm. Only fools say in their hearts there is no God. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. God looks down from heaven on the entire race. He looks to see if there's anyone truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. Not a single one. Would those who do evil never learn? He goes on and talks about the terror that's going to grip and scattering enemies. But then it comes to that last verse, which is a little bit different than the 14th Psalm. Because it says, who will come from Mount Zion to rescue Israel? Who will come from this place that is the spiritual center of Israel? This place that is likened to heaven. Who will come and rescue them? Who will come and rescue us? Who will come and make us aware of the rats that scurry in the basement of our own lives. Because without that awareness and that Holy Spirit's opening of our eyes, we can't even become aware of our own circumstances. So who is this going to be? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. It's in Christ that we tend to have this understanding and this change and this transformation. And then catch this. As the passage goes on in the fifth chapter, 18 verse through 20. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and note this line, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Not of extremism, not of violence, not of of finding a way to slam person or own them or tear them down but gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Pay attention to the scripture. This is huge. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and he wasn't going to count man's sins against them. And he has committed to us the... I don't know if you guys can read it, and if I can get something from the crowd that's here, and if you're at home, you can read as well too. He has committed to us the what? message of reconciliation. And this even shows the fallenness of man's nature because it started strong and kind of petered out across the group here. We can't seem to get that together here. So one more time, he gave us the what? Where are you guys even at in that? One more time, all together, just for those that are watching, okay? He gave us the what? He gave us a message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We're not going to go off on any tangent 
even those that have a deeply moral depth, we will speak to those issues often, always. But we're not going to allow anything to take us off target from what our goal is. As individuals made in the image of God, with a capacity for greatness, but because of our broken nature, a capacity still for hard-hearted evilness. That the only reason we've been saved is by the grace of God and that he has reconciled us to himself through Christ and his sacrifice. That he also now has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The issues of social justice are significant and we should be conscious of those and as individuals engage in that. And even as a church there will be moments and times and places on a variety of subjects. But our mission, our ministry is one of reconciliation. He's committed to us this message of reconciliation. And therefore, through us, he's making an appeal to the world. And then that last statement, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Are our actions, are the way we engage people, Is it wrapped up in our own sense of self-righteousness with a misunderstanding of our own righteousness? That's what self-righteousness is. Or is there a humility, even a brokenness? And again, we can take that even too far where we just stay broken and constantly aware of our shattered image experience. And that's not where Christ leads us. But if we don't come to that point and recognize that point, we can never come into the fullness of what he has for us. And so it has to begin there. And for those of in an audience today, we implore you on Christ's behalf. We must first come to awareness of the shattered image that we bear and the weakness within ourselves. And once we become conscious of that need, then we reach out to God on our knees and in brokenness. Once we have received that grace, we don't rise up in some horse that we ride upon to attack and belabor others, but we walk with a quietness, the humility of a monk that, that quietly wants to implore people. And that means a lot of times, folks, that we stand in the place that John Cleese included in both of his lists, the moderate, the one who stands in the middle, the one who gets shot at by both sides. Because in many ways, that's how the Christian is supposed to be, the one who stands between heaven and earth. That's what the church is supposed to be. And while we don't get shot at by God, that we somehow bridge that gap in this ministry of reconciliation that was first enacted within our own lives. And so this morning, as, as part of our gathering, as part of our celebration, as part of our recognition that before national identity, and while we're happy, those of us that are Americans, to be Americans, and while we can be happy with a series of other identifications that we can have, that we would declare this morning on this day that our, our number one, first and foremost, identity and loyalty will always be that of a sinner saved by grace. Will always be that of a Christian, of a human being who's recognized the marring of their own image but has come on their knees before God and he's restoring that bit by bit. We're not perfect yet and we won't be on this earth. But he's slowly, gradually restoring that image. And so this morning we're going to take of communion and if you're at home you can join us.
Ours is an open communion. You do not have to be a member of this church. You do have to be a follower of Christ. You do have to come to an understanding of the things. And if you haven't, if you haven't come to understanding of your own sin and your own fallacies, then I would encourage you this morning to consider what we've read here today. We would implore you on Christ's behalf. Accept the grace that he offers today. So Lord, we come before you in preparing our hearts to receive. There's so much strife within our world here today and and we can find ourselves thrust right into the middle of that. And in many ways, we always are. And we can ramp up and get angry on one side or the other and sometimes there can be a righteous anger in that but oftentimes there's something darker that, that, that allows us to expiate the, the, the own demons within our soul and to unleash them on someone else. So Lord, today on this national holiday we step back in humility. We seek to align everything that we are and everything we believe and think in alignment with your Holy Spirit and this ministry of reconciliation that you call us to so that all would feel welcomed in this place and drawn in. Not necessarily all affirmed. We cannot affirm all things. But we can establish ourselves in a way that can draw people to you in the same way that, that someone one time submitted themselves in a way that drew us to you, O oh God. And so as we prepare our hearts this morning, I pray that you cleanse our hearts and minds of any extremism, of the horrors that we would unleash upon the world, and that you would instead let the better angels of ourselves rise up somehow, quiet, confident, strong, thoughtful, and above all, loving with grace. As we prepare for this communion, address our hearts and our souls, I pray in Jesus' name. The Passover meal had been celebrated for centuries at this point in time when Jesus and his disciples sat. And and it was to have a time of remembering how the angel of death had passed over and how life had been given back uh, to the Jewish people, how they'd been brought out of the slavery. It was symbolic of the sin that we all encounter. So he took this event and to show and to highlight in a tangible form the grace he was bringing, the, the freedom, the forgiveness, the life he was giving. He took a piece of bread out of that meal and he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you. He says, don't ever forget this. And so this morning as we have gathered in this place, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for the grace and forgiveness that you've given to us. We recognize it this morning. And by your brokenness, we are made whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we take together? He then took a cup and he filled it with wine, which was part of the ceremony that was being done there. But he invoked it with a new statement. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Death is the requirement for sin. A blood offering is part of it. 
He was basically saying in this that no more will there be sheep and goats slaughtered to show us the bloodiness of our sin and, and to, to cleanse in some way for that, that all that's over with now, that there's going to be one death that was all pointing up to this one death, this one sacrifice, this one Lamb of God without blemish, Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. And so he said, this blood, this cup represents that blood. And so, Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you because it is by this sacrifice that we are made whole and are made clean. And we walk with humility, ever conscious of our sins, but also conscious that they have been forgiven and that we walk in grace by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we take together? This concludes our gathering here today. For those of you that are following us on the stream. Uh, next week, we're going to continue on with our live stream at 11 a.m. Um, if you are in the Witness Protection Program, you might want to join us at our 9 a.m., where the video will not be being shown at any time, and you won't be streamed across the nation. Um, regardless of whichever service you join us on, 9 or 11 next week, um, leave your remote controls at home. Your mute will not work here, so keep that in mind. Um, and if you're unable to join us, we understand that as well. Please communicate to us, talk to us. But otherwise, next week, we will be convening in both services. Please register ahead of time and uh, follow some of the guidelines so we can handle this responsibly and protect everyone involved. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your provision. And God, we ask you to continue to guide us as a nation and as a people, but particularly as a church, Lord God, to know how we are to function and act during these times. I pray your blessing and protection upon this congregation, whether we are convening on location or, or staying at home, that you just minister your grace and your blessing and protection, I pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.